Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And this week, we are discussing a role that might not normally make news headlines, but has in recent months, Japan's ambassador to Australia. Now, the role is currently filled by a man named Shingo Yamagami, who's been nicknamed Japan's Wolf Warrior. And Keith is here to explain everything that's been happening with this outspoken ambassador and whether he's been recalled by his home country. Keith, before we get into Mr Yamagami's recent controversies, you could say, could you tell us a little bit more about him and what his role is in Australia? Yes, so traditionally the ambassadors represent countries in somebody else's country. Canberra has been seen as a bit of a backwater, you'd have to say generally, in the old days, in fact, you were given a hardship allowance similar to what you would earn if you were in Africa. Oh, God. So in recent decades, it stopped being that way. And it's interesting that quite often, well, from the American point of view, it's a good place to dump major donors to the party. So mm-hmm. they had the title of Mr. Ambassador or Madam Ambassador for the rest of their lives. Because in the United States, when you get a title, you can retain that title. So if President Trump were to walk into this room now we would have to refer to him as Mr. President, Mm. even though he's no longer president. It was seen as a bit of a sinecure for Americans. And then, of course, under Gough Whitlam, for the first time, the Americans got worried about having a a Labour prime minister in power. And so they sent out a real diplomat, Marshall Green, who was a specialist in organising coups, uh, who'd been involved in Chile. And, of course, coincidentally, the Australian government was later removed. I'm not suggesting there's a conspiracy there, (laughs) just a coincidence. So in the case of Japan, traditionally the ambassador's role has been one of uh, of somebody verging on retirement. It was a nice position to have. Australia is clearly a close friend of Japan. There are no major tensions or anything like that. What we've seen with um, the outgoing ambassador has been someone who in effect, has emphasised that Japan is now becoming Australia's second most important ally after the United States. Mm. So this week, we've seen the um, launching of a submarine program with the leaders of the United States, United Kingdom and Australia taking place in California. And that gives the impression that the UK is an important player in Australia's defence future. Whereas I think the real position is held by Japan. Mm. So what we're seeing in Japan now, because of the resurgence of China onto the world scene and the fact that North Korea is becoming a nuclear power, the Japanese are dispensing with the pacifist constitution that was laid down by the Americans when they occupied Japan after the war. And the Japanese are saying, we're now going to have a fully-fledged military force. So in a sense, therefore, One of our listeners who suggested that we look at the fate of Mr. Yamagami, really very well timed from our point of view, because it fits in very neatly with the lead story this week, which has been this decision with AUKUS and going ahead with the development of AUKUS and reminder perhaps that Japan is knocking on the door Mm. and saying, look, Australia's real defence partner alongside the United States should be Japan. 
not just the United Kingdom. Mm. So uh, Mr Yamagami, as the ambassador, recently made some comments, I think it was back in January, about China. Could you talk us through those? Yeah, now this is the controversy. Normally, ambassadors are very quiet. They're sent to lie on behalf of their country and they, as a rule, don't get into the headlines. The Japanese ambassador this time departed from his predecessors. Remember, this guy is a professional diplomat, former spy chief as well, so he's got the runs on the board. And he was very critical of China, which fitted in very well with the prevailing rhetoric of, well, certainly the outgoing Morrison government, but I think also members of the incoming Labor government. There is this feeling that Japan as we've seen with the launching of the AUKUS submarine program, there is a feeling amongst Western allies that China is becoming much more aggressive. And so he reflected that. Now, the phrase wolf warrior is an interesting play on words that was originally used for the Japanese, uh, sorry, for the Chinese diplomats. Uh, right. So the Chinese diplomats, who are also supposed to be shy and retiring and whatever, have in recent years got really in your face. Mm-hmm. So this is the new more combative approach of President Xi. And this is reflected in the behaviour of the diplomats who are becoming much more aggressive. Now, it may well be that President Xi has realised that wolf diplomacy really doesn't work very well. The wolf is a reference to some sort of TV series in China where Chinese rather than Americans save the world. Uh Uh-huh. I like it. So they're called wolf diplomats. And it may well be that China has realised that really they've had such an adverse reaction that perhaps wolf diplomacy hasn't worked, but certainly the Japanese took it up. And the Chinese, of course, responded by reminding Australia that Japan was at once a threat to Australian security or tried to invade the country. Whether or not they would have invaded in World War II is still an open question. They certainly attacked Sydney. They attacked Darwin. Mm. They did to a lot of destruction, even if they didn't send an invading army into the country. They did kill a lot of Australians. And so the the Chinese are really saying, look, Australia and China have a shared history when it comes to Japan. Japan is a very aggressive, brutal country. And of course, there there is still this uh, battle of the history books, as it's called, with the Chinese having one view of the Japanese invasion of China in the 1930s, Japan having one view, the Chinese having another. The Japanese minimise the amount of destruction which they caused in Nanjing particularly, and the Chinese remember it very clearly. Mm. The Japanese in World War II used China as an experimental area for chemical and biological warfare. Mm. The Japanese try to play that down, whereas the Chinese remember it. So it's been a very interesting war of words that got on between China and Japan And it's been partly playing out in Australia. And this outgoing ambassador has been one of those who's been willing to repay the Chinese in their own coin. What do you think he was hoping to achieve by making those comments? Well, I think what he has done is to remind Australia that Japan is undergoing its own transformation. Japan realises that it's probably unwise to rely on the United States simply as an ally. I think Joe Biden has shown himself to be clearly a supporter of of Asian countries. But under Donald Trump, who knows what would have happened. Mm -mm. Trump was quite often hostile towards China, which was a policy that began under Barack Obama. So Barack Obama, when he was actually in Australia, I was covering the trip. This is for the 
G20 meeting that we hosted in Brisbane, the president referred to this tilt to Asia. In other words, the Americans were trying to get out of European affairs and also get out of the Middle East. Mm. No more wars on terror, killing Muslims, etc. And in future, the focus would be on Asia. So that began under Obama and continued under Trump, even though Trump sort of disavowed a lot of Obama's policies. That anti-Chinese rhetoric remained there. And then it's been continued very much under Biden. But from the Japanese point of view is that they remember back into the history of Taiwan. Taiwan was defended by the United States from the time of the Chinese Communist Revolution, so Mm. we're looking at the late 1940s, all the way through into the early 1970s. And then it was convenient for the Americans to throw Taiwan under the bus and suddenly to recognise mainland China Mm. as a way of trying to broker a deal over Vietnam and open up China to international trade, etc. And so Taiwan was discarded. And I think that in the tribal memory of Japan, there is a similar fear that the Americans could do that, not with Biden, but clearly with a later president. And so the Japanese are rebuilding their defence posture. Their argument is, look, we've got North Korea who don't like us, the Chinese who don't like us, therefore we've got to have more defence forces. And you in Australia and we in Japan have similar concerns. Mm. Therefore, we need to enhance our military alliance. Now, of course, in the Australian context, there are a number of Australians who remember the problems we had the last time the Japanese were Mm well-armed and the mischief that they caused and the suffering. So that's what he's been trying to overcome, just to say, look, in effect, it's a new era. And so what we are seeking to do is to put ourselves onto the world stage and we would like to work with Australia in combating the Chinese aggressiveness. How do you think Japan feels about how the ambassadors performed, given his uh, outspokenness, let's say? (laughs) Well, there have been allegations made that, in fact, his outspoken nature has not always been fully welcomed by the Japanese. In the Japanese tradition, an ambassador can speak on their own behalf and they don't need to have everything cleared by head office back in Tokyo. In Australia, it's different. Mm. So if an ambassador or high commissioner gives a speech, that person has to get the speech cleared in Canberra. But that's on the understanding that ambassadors generally don't inflame local audiences. <laughs> <laughs> Whether or not there'll be changes now made and they're trying to rein in ambassadors to make sure they aren't quite so outspoken in the future. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda, and this week we're discussing Japan's outspoken ambassador to Australia, Shingo Yamagami, and why his time here might be up. Now, I did see something saying that usually the role's two to three years, but there was an event he spoke at in Canberra. It was for the, what was it, the governor's... The the emperor's birthday. Emperor's birthday, thank you. Uh, And he said, it's come up quicker than I expected along those lines. Has he been recalled or was his time just up? I think his time is going to be up. I don't think that the Tokyo government would have been that annoyed. I think that basically the ambassadors tend to serve two to three years. His predecessor was there for a couple of years. And so I think that he, he would have been coming to the end of his time here. I've got to say that what he has said would not really have annoyed the Tokyo government 
because Tokyo is concerned mm. about what's going on with China. It is concerned about North Korea. So I think that he's simply been a very articulate spokesperson for the Japanese anxieties. But I don't think he's actually said anything very controversial from that point of view, like saying let's make Japan into a republic or anything like that. He hasn't gone down that path at all. I think he's just spoken, as a lot of Japanese people feel. Mm. I do feel, though, there's such an adherence to politeness and etiquette in Japan. <laughs> when I think of the Japanese, and obviously they're diplomats as well, you expect, you're very mm. proper. Do you not think that he might have rubbed some Japanese people the wrong way in his oh, home government? Oh, I'm sure there'd be some um, people who are very process-driven who would have said, yes, you know, this is not the way that we want our ambassadors to behave. We want them, as you say, to be very meek and mild. But you've got other people, I'm sure, in Japan who are saying, good on you. Mm. This is what needs to be said. As I say, he's speaking on behalf of the feelings of a lot of people in Japan, and he knows that. Mm. I also read, uh, you sent me a couple of articles this week, and one of them it was talking about how the Albanese government maybe was struggling a little bit with Mr Yamagami because he was quite well in with Scott Morrison yep. and Peter Dutton. Can you explain that relationship for us? Yeah, so in this article, they were looking at the way in which his hardline, this is Am- Ambassador Yamagami's views, the way that his views were hardline and fitted in very much with Scott Morrison. The Labor government has been trying to improve relations with China. You know, it's an on-off relationship. And so if any Chinese person would have been watching this week's events in California with the submarines, mm. you know, the Chinese will say, oh, there are the Australians are, are sticking to the standard script. They're being anti-Chinese. So you're right. He, he certainly got very close to the previous government. But I think there are members of the current government who would share his point of view. And the proof for that is the fact that we're still going ahead with this submarine program. And the Prime Minister, Albanese, spoke fulsomely on behalf of this submarine program. So the Labor Party is locked into it. Mm. It's interesting. When I was covering it on television, I I was uh, asked uh, by one of my colleagues, what would be a potential next step? You get the nuclear power submarines, what would be the next lot of weapons you could acquire? And I said, well, you got nuclear powered, why not go for nuclear weapons? Mm. We withdraw from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. We would be ramping up, obviously, our nuclear presence. But, of course, we are the Saudi Arabia of uranium. We've got so much of the stuff, much of which remains in the ground. Mm. So we could start to acquire nuclear weapons. And it's very interesting because um, half an hour later when we were covering the the actual uh, ceremony and, and President Biden was speaking, he said four times during his speech that uh, the, the submarines were to be nuclear-powered not nuclear armed. It's almost as though he'd heard what I had to say. It <laughs> <laughs> gave me a, a preemptive strike beforehand. Yeah. I think that Biden, who presides over a left-wing party, which would contain people with a more peaceful persuasion, and Albanese is presiding over a left-wing party, again, with people who have got a more peaceful persuasion. And I think that both the Democratic Party and the Labour Party would like to see us improving relations with China. You've also got business interests, ironically, that be pushing to improve the relations between the two countries. So in a sense, we are acquiring these submarines, but without the nuclear weapons. And the two left-wing politicians, it's Biden and, and Albanese, both trying to reassure their own followers 
that Australia is not going to be leaving the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's not going to be contributing towards nuclear issues in the Pacific. And that's a way of trying to hose down mm. some of the aggressive. I'm not suggesting that Scott Morrison would have been in favour of pulling out of the Non-Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. That's been a central part of Australian policy for several years. We were slow to get in. We, I think we probably need to look at all of this NPT stuff, mm. perhaps in a later program. We were slow to get into that treaty. And, of course, you know, we were carrying out our own nuclear research. And when I think back to how I got started talking about world affairs, I was talking about, by the, this was in the 1960s, by the year 2000, we would have 20 or 30 nuclear-armed countries in the world, one of which would be Australia. Right. I was at that time living in Great Britain. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about Sweden, Canada and Australia because they had the the engineering and the financial resources to go down that nuclear path. Luckily, all three decided not to do that and therefore to support the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But the fear that some of us have got is that this notion of international cooperation to restrain nuclear arms races is gradually being frittered away. We've now only got one nuclear disarmament treaty. It's distinct from the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is arms control. Mm -hmm. We've only got one nuclear disarmament treaty still in circulation. Right. And Russia has now suspended its involvement. It hasn't pulled out, but it's suspended its involvement. So from a nuclear point of view, the world is in a very difficult situation. And the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which has this atomic clock, you know, you're yes. approaching midnight. Yeah, the doomsday. It, the doomsday <laughs> clock. And, and, you know, we are moving closer towards doomsday. Yeah. That's so, certainly something to keep an eye on. So, yes, China would perhaps have people like to improve relations with Australia. You've got people in Australia who'd like to improve relations with China but there's also this military imperative. Mm. And lastly, to round us out, Keith, what do you think is in the future for Australian-Japanese relations broadly since we're talking about it? Well, I think that we're going to see more and more connections between Australia and Japan. Remember, Japan is still one of our major trading partners. Okay, not now as big as China. China has dwarfed that. Mm. But Japan is still a reliable trading partner, so good economic links between the two countries. And as I say, I think Japan is manoeuvring to become our second biggest military ally after the United States. In other words, although we're supposed to be improving relations with the UK, Britain is really just an imperial country in the past. I think we'll need to look at the decline of poor old Britain, speaking as an Englishman, <laughs> looking at the decline of poor old Britain. And so Japan is in effect saying, look, we're the real partner for you in the Pacific. Don't rely on Britain as 12,000 miles away will be your major partner alongside the United States in the Pacific. So, again, it proves that what's happened in this in the world this week has been really very significant with the AUKUS agreement, particularly with the submarines beginning to line up, and I think the manoeuvring by the Japanese to improve their relations with Australia in military terms. We're going through a very historic turning point in world affairs at the moment. Well, all very interesting points. Thank you, Dr Keith Suda, for your company. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.